And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that, that, uh, that uh, first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things, be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. There is so much in this passage, but I was telling Brian um, before the meeting today that my notes are very short because I think it was a choice between four pages or 400 pages. So I've gone for the four pages version. Now, perhaps for the middle-aged amongst us, we, we, we might say hyperlinks, like when you're using the internet and um, you, you, you know, there's, there's something is mentioned, you can click on it and it takes you there and you read about it. I think for younger people, it, it would be hashtags, you know, words with the, uh, sorry, if, if you're not, if you're too old to understand this, but y young people, they put um, uh, a gate thing in front, um, uh, hash in front, I said gate thing because they call it in Greek, um, and that means the words kind of got significance and refers to something else. Now, this passage is loaded with hashtags or hyperlinks. It just links to the whole story of God, what Jesus came to do and how Jesus, we can be absolutely certain, has victory over his enemies. And I want to take you a little bit into the world of the first century of Palestine or Israel and the surrounding area. Because words in different cultures, in different contexts, are loaded with different meanings. So, for example, if I say the word maul, what do you think? No connotation? Shopping, yeah. Now, for the people of the first century in the Greco-Roman Empire, the equivalent of the mall was the agora, which we still have in Greek, the marketplace. But 
it was at the mall, if you like, in Athens that Paul went to engage with the Greek philosophers. So in our context, mall means perhaps shopping and coffee. In the first century, the mall was shopping, but also a place for intellectual debate and engagement. If I say beach, don't be shy, what do you think? Sun? Swimming. Yeah, that's what I've got on, that's what I came up with as well. But it wasn't that long ago in Cyprus when people didn't lie on beaches and get sunburnt. A beach would be where set fishermen set off before light, yeah? And where they returned with their catches. Now, how about bad areas? Now, I, I'm, I can't I don't really know a bad area in Cyprus. Well, there are some, I mean, there's one or two, let's say, sketchy areas um, in Larnaca, I know. But growing up in London, there was an area called Soho, which back in the 70s, at least, had a very bad reputation. Okay? It's an area you wouldn't go to except to sort of indulge in things which weren't Right. By the way, it's all been cleaned up a lot and it's quite a nice area now, I understand. So, not passing any judgment there. Last one. What does mountain mean to you? What's the connotation? I think climbing, climbing mountains. Heights. In Cyprus, I think the more the Middle East, mountain also has the idea of somewhere cool that you go in the summer. You go to the mountains to escape the heat. That, that's this part of the world, yeah? And um, I know when we had kids, the mountains were always, when there was snow, the children wanted to be taken to the mountains. So even amongst us, the word mountain has different connotations. Now, in the ancient Near East, this part of the world, a long time ago, the mountains were the abodes of the gods. There's a hyperlink there. I could go off on a tangent, spend a huge amount of time on that. I won't. Eden was a mountain. That's clear in Ezekiel 28. It was a mountain where heaven and earth met. And when Adam and Eve um, were driven from Eden, they would have had to come down that mountain and they were separated from God. And the Tower of Babel was a foolish attempt to build a mountain, in effect, the tallest structures, structure that humans could build at that time. And it was an attempt then to get the gods to come down to humans again. Moses leaves his father-in-law, Jethro, and he's returning to Egypt. Do you remember where he encounters Yahweh? We've done the whole book of Exodus, so think back. Correct, the burning bush, which was on 
a mountain, Mount Sinai. He then returns to Egypt. God sets the people free. Fast forward 20 or so chapters and Moses leads the people back to Sinai where they will again encounter God. What was the home of the ancient Greek pantheon, their bunch of gods? Olympus. And Mount Carmen. Do you remember Mount Carmen in the Bible? Mount Carmen is where Elijah took on the prophets of Baal. Mount Carmel at that time was the home of Baal and his pantheon, you know, his sort of god buddies, not good gods, I would emphasise. But through Elijah, Yahweh shows up and the false prophets are slaughtered. If I can kind of use a sporting metaphor... That was like an away game for God. He played on the enemy's ground, the enemy's pitch, if you like, and brought utter destruction. And so we are reminded again that our God is a warrior God, a mighty God. And this is what Isaiah said about Jesus, mighty God. That mighty word I mentioned before is Um, mighty as in a fighter, a warrior, a man of strength, victorious over his enemies. Now, in the beginning of the passage, verse 2, we don't get the name of the mountain, but it's almost certainly um, Mount Hermon. And the reason is that Jesus and the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, as Brian took us through last week. It's a little bit like me saying to you, such and such a person went to Limassol, yeah, and then they went up the mountain. Now, the only mountain they can really go up from Limassol is Drolos, because it's right next to it. I don't think you could possibly take it to mean they sort of somehow went round Drolos and then went to the um, Bendavactylos range, okay? So they're in a horrible place called Caesarea Philippi, next to a horrible mountain with very evil connotations. And I'm going to read, I've got four quotes, but I think I'll keep it to two, Okay. These first two quotes are from a scholar called Michael Heiser that um, we do plug sometimes in our sermons. Just go on YouTube, Michael Heiser, very, very interesting teaching. Heiser says, Caesarea Philippi, from last week, yeah, was located in the northern part of the Old Testament region of Bashan, which means the place of the serpent at the foot of Mount Hermon. 
Another quote. This is about Caesarea Philippi. The site, this is Heister uh, again, the site was famous in the ancient world as a centre of worship of Pan and for a temple to the high god Zeus, considered in Jesus' day to be incarnate in Augustus Caesar. The point is, no decent Jew would have gone anywhere near that area. And yet last week, we heard how Jesus took the disciples to this horrible place. And it was here that Peter had just professed that Jesus is the Messiah, just back in chapter 8. Matthew gives us more detail of what happened. Matthew says, I say to you that you are Peter. The name Peter sounds like rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. The gates of hell were a cave at the bottom of Mount Hermon. There's quite a few places in the world called the gates of hell. It's not a sort of a, a, a name that isn't used. And I'm quoting here. The pagans of Jesus' day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and returned to earth each spring. They saw water as a symbol of the underworld and thought that their gods travelled to and fro from that world through caves. To that mind then, the cave and spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a, a gate to the underworld. In order to entice the return of the gods, of, of their god Pan, each year, the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in horrible deeds, including prostitution and sexual interaction between humans and goats. What someone once objected when in a, a preach I made a reference to sort of abominable things. My point would be that to the original hearers, when Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi and then goes up that mountain, this is what those places meant to them. Okay, we can't kind of dodge around this. This is an awful place. And I quote again, um, one last quote from a man called No. Interesting, isn't it? No. Um, you must know what he's talking about. He says, when Jesus brought his disciples to the area, they must have been shocked. 
Caesarea Philippi was like a red light district in their world and devout Jews would have avoided any contact with the despicable acts committed there. So what's happening here is that the definitive and final war of God against the gods of Canaan and the Greco-Roman world, that is the gods of this world, is about to begin. This is an exodus out of slavery to this world. It's God's defeated and the journey into the promised land, the new creation that God is preparing. And so let's actually look at the passage. In verse 2 that Lisa read, And after six days, Jesus took along Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus, we've said, leads them up of all places, Mount Hermon, the territory of an evil pantheon outside the Jewish areas of the Roman province of Judea and continuing and he was transfigured before them and his clothing became radiant extremely white like no cloth refiner on earth can make white so Jesus is transfigured or transformed and is shining, radiant. We mentioned the burning bush. That's how the angel of Yahweh appeared when Moses first encountered him in Exodus chapter 3. According to Ezekiel 28 that I've mentioned before, the Satan in Eden was a sparkling cherubim. Heavenly creatures, it seems, shine. They sparkle, or at least the way it's how it's accommodated, if you like, to us so that we can understand it. But Jesus looks like a heavenly being but you know the satan had rebelled and he ruled this world check matthew 4 with the rebellious gods check psalm 82 And so as I said, Jesus is revealed as a heavenly being, but as the heavenly being. Splendorous, the shining one who is going to take over where the other heavenly beings failed. 
And you're going to say to me, well, Moses shone. Yes, he did. It's in Exodus 34. But when Moses was in the presence of Yahweh, who shines with such intensity he couldn't look directly at God, yeah? When Moses comes down the mountain, oh, mountain again, his face is shining. But his face shone because he was in the presence of God. In the transfiguration, Jesus shines by himself. This is God's glory radiating from Jesus. He is the angel of Yahweh who showed up in the burning bush. He is Yahweh himself. So how will Jesus overthrow the Satan and the kingdom of this world when Moses and Israel had failed? All will literally be revealed. Okay, because this is an apocalyptic event, which the Greek speakers amongst you know means a revelation. Okay, in verse 4, and Elijah appeared to them together with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So I think we just need to spend a few moments on Elijah and Moses. Why do Elijah and Moses appear at this point? Well, Elijah is using scripture as a type of all the prophets. Now, by a type, we mean a kind of, um, like, if you say Elijah, you could mean all the prophets. I tried to think of examples that kind of, I thought sports ones and whatever, and I wasn't, I thought we'll get into a sort of an argument whether, you know, if you say Pele, that means all footballers, whatever. But Elijah was like the ultimate prophet. And so um, he is, if you like, the heading the title that goes over all the prophets and John the Baptist. But Elijah is passing the baton on to Jesus. And this is why I think we get these confusing references in the Gospels about who Elijah is. Is it John? Yes, but John says it isn't. Is it Jesus? We'll come back to that in a moment. As we've already said, God had defeated Baal, the God of Canaan, and demonstrated himself as the God above all gods through Elijah on another mountain, Mount Carmel. Jesus, as an Elijah, will now take on all the gods of the nations from their mountain, yeah, away game, which overlooks the land that God had promised to his people. 
Are you seeing the vividness of this if you are the original hearers, yeah? And we must remember that after his baptism, Jesus entered the wilderness and was taken to a high mountain by the devil and was offered the kingdoms of the world in return for falling down before Satan and worshipping him. Matthew chapter 4. So here's Jesus back on a mountain, effectively looking at the kingdoms of the world. Now you're going to say, well, you couldn't see, you know, my country from there. But yes, the world to the hearers was a smaller place. It's a high place. They see Israel. They see the nations around. But this Jesus isn't going to bow to Satan. He's going to inherit the nations. He's going to defeat their gods in a glorious way in obedience to his father. So that's Elijah, and Jesus becomes the ultimate Elijah. Secondly, Moses appears. So it's a little bit less time on Moses, okay? Moses was a priest, and he was the lawgiver judge for God's people. And Jesus has already taken on a Moses type of role in the Sermon on the Mountain, as I like to call it, although it's usually called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, again, a mountain. But you remember the Sermon on the Mount? We've preached through this. Jesus basically goes through Torah and tells the people, you're not supposed to read it like they've been telling you. This is the way that you're supposed to read it. You're supposed to obey Torah from the heart. It has to be written on your heart. You have to be changed inside. And you know the Sermon on the Mount, there are miracles before, miracles afterwards, just like when the law was given on Sinai. We, we, we looked at this before. So Jesus has already been identified as the Moses, if you like. And Peter, at some level, is beginning to join the dots. Because in verse 5, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. And let us make three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he should answer because he was terrified, understandably. He knows something huge is happening. And as a man with knowledge of the scriptures, with knowledge of the story of his nation, having been taught by Rabbi Jesus, it seems that the Holy Spirit kind of nudged Peter here because tents indicate God's presence as commemorated in the Feast of Booths. Now, again, if I say tent, yeah, you think camping trip in the mountains, yeah? When you say, when you say tents to Jewish people, it's the Feast of Booths. It's God's presence. In verse 7, 
a cloud came overshadowing them. Now, what does cloud mean? I've just come back from the UK. Their cloud means, oh no, it's going to rain. Right. Not in the ancient Near East. Even amongst the pagans, cloud indicates sky, the heavens, the place of the gods. If the slides come up, I've given lots of references if you want to check them. So if a cloud represents heaven, the place of God, then the cloud comes down and it envelops them. It surrounds them. If you like, they are caught up in heaven. Heaven has come down again as it did at Eden, as it did at Sinai as it did at Mount Carmel. Eden will be restored. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is the third time that God's voice is publicly heard. When I say public, I mean the people around actually heard a voice declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. The first is at his baptism. This is the second, and the third will be at the triumphal entry, according to John. This links, or hashtags, whatever the word is, to Psalm 2, where it talks about the Son destroying God's enemies. Now, I don't think this is a reference to Jesus as the Son of God, as in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is true. I'm not denying that for one second. But again, ancient Near East, kings were the sons of gods. And so the Almighty God, the God of Israel, says, this is my son. So Jesus is God's king jesus is going to rule over the nations let me just plug psalm 2 again there okay read psalm 2 it's all there and in verse 8 of our passage suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but jesus alone so they've been given a glimpse of what is going to happen Eden is going to be restored. But in a moment, it's gone. This was, as we've said, an apocalypse, a revelation. It's like the sky opening up and a glimpse of what is being planned in heaven very vivid, very clear to the disciples, very clear to the original hearers. But the language has come a bit lost, if you like, the imagery is a bit lost over time. Verse 9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them that they should tell no one the things they had seen 
except when the Son of Man had been raised from the dead, and they kept the matter to themselves. And this is something we keep seeing in Mark, we keep seeing in the Gospels. It's God's timing. If the Romans had caught onto this, if the leaders of the Jews had caught onto this now, Jesus would have been executed prematurely. He is going to die, but not quite yet. Jesus submits himself to God's timing. They were discussing amongst themselves in verse 8 what this rising from the dead meant. And we touched on this before. Why is the resurrection not clear in the Old Testament? Well, Psalm 82 tells us that the rulers of this world are the sons of the gods, heavenly beings in rebellion. And if they had known what was going to happen or what God's plan, what God's plan was, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Now, you think that's speculative? Read 1 Corinthians 2.8. This is exactly the conclusion that Paul has drawn. Now, he says rulers of this world, and we think kings and emperors. But in the biblical picture, the rulers of this world are evil beings who are behind what is going on and working against God and his kingdom. Don't be deceived. What we're engaged in is not a sort of philosophical debate. It's not what I believe versus what you believe. The reality which has been revealed to us is that there is a world we cannot see. It's not just God. It's much more. It's creatures in rebellion to God that we cannot see who took over the nations. And so finally, and they, were, and they asked him saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah indeed does come first and restores all things. This isn't John the Baptist. This is Jesus. Jesus John the Baptist wasn't Elijah. He was an Elijah. But he knew he wasn't the Elijah. He knew the one coming after him. Jesus was the Elijah, the prophet of God. And then Jesus asks, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Where in the scriptures does Jesus get that from? 
Where is it written in the Hebrew Bible that a son of God should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Time does not permit an answer to that question, but please keep it in mind. As a sort of prequel, can I suggest we're not reading our Bibles right? When Jesus and New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, it often jars. They must be reading it right, we're reading it wrong, but that is another matter. That would have been the 400-page preach. But I tell you, and it wouldn't have been worth it because I couldn't have answered the question fully anyway, but I tell you that indeed Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. A quote, last quote, and then we'll think about so what. This quote is from um, Craig Keener and uh, John Walton. Again, you know, YouTube, whatever. Put John Walton. You'll, you'll, you'll get some great teaching from John Walton. They write, Elijah would prepare the way for God's coming. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. It's also in an apocryphal book of Sirach. Jesus applies the prophecy figuratively to John the Baptist, yeah? And then it reaches its fullest sense in Jesus. And just a little, if you like, I said this was the end, but let me just stick one extra thing in. This, I think, is how we're reading the Old Testament wrong. Things get fulfilled more than once they get partially fulfilled but in jesus they are utterly full yet full filled they're utterly filled up by jesus but let's stop and just let's just have a so what now me as i dug into this passage I knew it was interesting. I didn't realize just how interesting the passage is. But God doesn't give us his word just to kind of pique our interest or stimulate our intellectual curiosity. God's word is to bring about change in us. So this event was apocalyptic. In other words, we're getting a glimpse of things that we can't normally see. And like Sinai, I remember Pastor Dave preaching on this, it was, in a, it was surrounded by giants and sketchy peoples, if you like. And here in our passage, God has again brought heaven to a mountain peak above the gates of hell. This should give us confidence. 
This is the kingdom that Jesus has brought. This is the kingdom that can play an away game, if you like, against the worst opposition that will commit fouls and play dirty, whatever, and utterly win. That is our God. Moses points to Jesus as the lawgiver and judge. How do we live our lives? Are we living according to Jesus' commands? Elijah points us to Jesus as the prophet. Jesus is the prophet, the supreme prophet that makes God known. As you think about God, how does your knowledge of God grow? When you have questions about God, and let's be honest, it is difficult to live in a world full of sin and you get questions about God and the justice of God and so on. Look at Jesus. Turn to Jesus. God declares that Jesus is the Son of God. He's king over the nations. So he's our lawgiver, our judge. He's our prophet. He is our king. Now Moses was some of those things, but he failed because of sin. He wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Elijah was an instrument used by God for victory over Baal. But what happened to the people? They just reverted back to their sinful ways. So how did Jesus succeed where Moses and Elijah and the kings of Israel like David could not? He succeeded because he was without sin. Yet he died because of sin. Let me just say that again. Jesus succeeded because he was without sin. Yet he died because of sin. To be raised from the dead and, and to ascend into heaven. The transfiguration only gives us a glimpse. But it's certain because of the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. This is our hope every moment of every day, nothing else.